you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Why, hello there I'm Gabby Dunn And if you've got money Don't give it to me Because I am bad with it Actually, do give it to me. Because a lot of you guys who are listening to this probably know me best from my work with Allison Raskin on our YouTube channel, Just Between Us. Uh, what's that? You didn't know about our YouTube channel? So you just love this podcast? That's pretty cool. But also, please go subscribe to Just Between Us and hit up our Patreon while you're there. I will wait. Welcome back to Bad With Money. Earlier in this show, I was telling you about this YouTube channel I have where Allison Raskin and I make comedy videos and very occasionally sponsored content for brands. What's crazy is thousands and thousands of other very talented people are doing the same thing as Allison and me and almost none of them are making any money doing it. Shit, Allison and I barely make anything from our videos despite the fact that we almost have 700,000 subscribers. Almost. Maybe by the time this airs we will have that. Because of the success of people like Jenna Marbles or PewDiePie, everyone assumes that all they need to do is fire up their laptop, talk into it, and start immediately cashing checks. The idea that lots of people think they're talented enough to make money from their creative output isn't new. But what is new is an economic environment that enables those people to realistically make a go of it. So that's an awesome thing. But are we just living in an era of peak self-delusion? Oh, God. Am I the most delusional of all? Could be. This week on the show, we're talking to two people who can help us figure out which it is. First, we're going to talk to Jody Beggs, who teaches economics at Northeastern University. And in a bit, we'll hear from Hank Green, who is the founder of VidCon and the Internet Creators Guild, among approximately a billion other projects. I think he's got a Harry Potter band. He's a weird guy. So let's start with Jody. She says that while the opportunity may appear to be very high for people who want to get famous on YouTube, the reality is actually pretty bleak. YouTube in and of itself can't necessarily be the end game. And that's not altogether atypical in a, you know, in a broader business sense that you can have a product that I guess the technical term is like a loss leader, right? Gillette gives the razors away to sell the razor blades would be, you know, the typical example that's used in business classes. I've never heard this. It gets pretty interesting. Think about how cheap a printer is and how expensive printer ink cartridges are. The business model that's being used is to sell you the initial thing cheaply to get you locked in to buy the higher margin product later. Oh, my God, I'm a pawn. Yeah, you kind of are. Your consumer psychology is fitting nicely with the strategies and the overall business plan of, you know, Hewlett Packard, et cetera, et cetera. So how does that relate to YouTube? Especially with digital content. People don't like paying for things that they can't touch and feel, etc. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that a lot of digital content creators could be served well to think more broadly in terms of their overall revenue streams rather than focusing only on monetizing the content itself. For example, there's a webcomic creator named Randall Monroe. He writes uh, XKCD. Yeah. And He puts XKCD out onto the internet and doesn't charge for that, does not have advertising on his site. So you can clearly see he doesn't make money directly from writing webcomics. 
However, he does sell merch associated with the webcomic and creates a revenue stream in that way. And right. people feel better paying for that because they're receiving something. Exactly. People don't mind because they like him and they like his work because they've seen the webcomic and then they're buying something that's associated with the webcomic that's a physical item that they're used to paying for. And you're like, oh, hey, when you take all those revenue streams together, that kind of works. Yeah. Like a lot of comedians now won't won't post clips of their stand up because that's giving away for free stuff that they would do in a show that you would pay to go see. Well, and that's completely consistent with any sort of typical business strategy. One of the things that that economists know, for example, about monopolies is that they're able to charge higher prices by restricting supply. And that's exactly what's happening in that space to say by controlling that distribution, by restricting that supply, I'm able to charge a higher price. I'm able to maintain that scarcity and by extension, maintain profitability. Yeah, that's why Allison won't let us vlog because she's afraid that <laughs> that we're going to give away too much content. <laughs> I would just be afraid I'd say something stupid on the internet and not be able to take it back. That's also part of it, yeah. So is any of this a sustainable business model? Is this working at all? It's working for some creators. As we get more into digital content, as we get more into things that are easily replicable, we get more of this superstar distribution of income where a few creators at the top do very, very well and then a very large percentage struggle. And that mirrors what we've seen in a number of other spaces. You know, I like to tell people a long time ago before we had recorded music, we didn't have superstar musicians. We had regional performers that would go to their local theater and perform for the people there. We wouldn't have, you know, the one Bob Dylan. You'd have to have a Bob Dylan for New England. You'd have to have a Bob Dylan for Florida. You'd have to because of the fact that you couldn't distribute one person's work infinitely far. Now we only need one Bob Dylan, mm -hmm. and he can satisfy the entire market for people who want Bob Dylan because we can just keep copying the recording over and over and over. And it's sort of the same idea with any sort of digital content that because there are no barriers in terms of geography, in terms of demographic, etc., we're likely to see a few people do very, very well, and then a lot of people who are getting, you know, 300 views per video or something like that. Mm -hmm. And given the just the technology and given the dynamics of that market, that's not entirely surprising. But what it does mean is that that average creator can't necessarily be sustainable with the YouTube revenue itself and needs to be, like I said, thinking more creatively about that business model. Whereas if we instead had a model where, like you're saying, the, the comedian doesn't put things on YouTube, only presents that material to a couple hundred people at a time at a comedy club, for example, if everyone was taking that approach, it would actually create fewer superstars but create a better revenue stream for the average creator. Now before we talk to Hank Green, let me take a second to tell you about VidCon and what it's meant to me and Allison, as well as to countless other YouTubers. If you don't know, VidCon is this huge convention for YouTubers and fans that happens in Anaheim every year. And 
Allison and I have been twice. Um, it's actually one of the only times that we get to like meet and mass all of our fans and address them and talk to them about issues that are really important to us. I did a sexuality panel. Allison did a mental health panel. We sold merch there and people got to know us. You know, if they're a fan of another YouTuber and they see us on a panel, they, you know, can check out our channel. Um, it's just a really cool, it's like Comic-Con for, vid- for video creators and video fans. It's just, you know, everybody gets to be together and be super excited about, you know, the thing of making videos on YouTube. It's great. And it's something that Hank founded. Hank is like a new media mogul. He and his brother started a YouTube channel way back in the beginning of YouTube channels where they would video blog to each other. So that's why a lot of his videos start with Dear John because he's talking to his brother and then John Green of Fault in Our Stars fame would post a video replying to Hank and people were following their relationship. They really liked seeing these two brothers talk to each other. Hank's also very smart. He's got his own record label and he's got this new project called the Internet Creators Guild which is specifically designed to push back against all the chaos we just learned about from Jody. So Hank is a buddy and I was just really excited to talk to him, as always, because he is the hotter of the Green Brothers. I have a kind of weird relationship with money. I remember when I was in high school, I would not eat. Like, they'd give me, like, three bucks for my lunch money, and I'd get, like, a fudge round and a milk. And that, So that you could keep half of yeah, it? Yeah, so that I could keep, keep like, 90% of it, like, like $2.25 of it. And then I would eat, like, whatever other people didn't eat off of their plates— and then I would save that money just to save it for a lot of my life. It, it was more like uh, it was the points uh, that, I was, that I was making uh, in my life, life game. You're a weird person. <laughs> <laughs> like what are you like? Well, I think in terms of like sort of top, top level money view, my dad was always very like you need like he set up stock portfolios for us. As, as children, not to like hands on, like, here's how you be a day trader. But <laughs> if you have money, here's the thing that you should be doing with it. Because if you're not doing that thing with it, then you're literally losing money. Every, every day that your money is not in a stock market, you are losing money. Yeah. I mean, I guess my whole problem is that, I mean, my, the idea of your dad making you do a portfolio is crazy to me because my parents are so like laissez-faire about it. And then I also was just like, Oh, you get money and then what do you spend it on? Or you get money and then you get and then you get rid of it. Like burning a hole in your pocket kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's just funny to imagine like a child being like, and I will hoard this money. Yeah. I will I, I like hit it hit it in places around my room so that my brother wouldn't find it and steal it, which he did do. So can you start from the beginning of I guess you'd have to explain what you do on YouTube a little bit to get to what the Internet Creators Guild is. Yeah. Well, I mean, John and I started making YouTube videos almost 10 years ago, my brother and I, and we... Wait, your brother is John Green? Yeah, he's John... That's so crazy. It is weird. It is weird. <laughs> I. It's funny when people are like, what do you do? And like, and then we talk for a while about it, because sometimes it's like, what do you do? And you talk for like five seconds, but then if it's like a yeah. party and we talk for a while, it always comes out that my brother is John Green, and like people kind of invariably know either John Green or The Fault in Our Stars, and it's right. that's super weird to like know that I'm working toward this thing where they will say, oh! <laughs> oh, suddenly you're an important person for me to talk yeah. to. Um, I was just here for your looks, but now... <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Like I've been, I've always been really obsessed with online video, and I think that's part of why we were successful at it because I'm always thinking about how it works. When you and John started, it wasn't like was it even a thought that you could make money from videos? No, no, yeah. there was definitely a feeling that we could create value from it, um, and that that might help John's career as a as an author, like if he had a bigger audience through sure. videos, and that turned out to be true, I think. Um, but mm-hmm. weirdly, I always thought that it was a huge deal culturally. As soon as I started seeing what YouTube was, I did a lot of mm. research on like the beginnings of TV, the beginnings of the movie industry, um, like vaudeville, uh, and like how vaudeville interplayed with radio. And I got so fascinated that there were all these like really, really amazing, interesting transitions in how we communicate with each other and that I was inside of one and I was going to get to help define it and define the culture of it. And maybe like someday somebody would write a book about this and like I would be in the book. Oh, my God. You're a nerd. But that's also like (laughs) that's like that's so that's such like interesting foresight. I was very excited about it and thought about it constantly and, you know, and how to make content that people would share and uh, enjoy and make people stick around for the next episode. And that led us to pretty early on also, in addition to making the content, be doing stuff with other people making content and that would, uh, you know, solidify the community and help other people on their path to doing this and making some money from it or or be, being full-time at it. And so that might have been like talking to friends and consulting with them about whether to quit their jobs or, you know, starting up a merch company that was like, hey, it's, you know, it's hard to make it work with just ads, but maybe people are going to buy stuff from you. And we also mm-hmm. started a, a, basically, it was very much like Patreon. Um, and it ended up being acquired by Patreon, kind of crowdfunding service. And VidCon, I think, you know, has always been, to me, like when I think about VidCon and like what I want it to be, I think mostly about, you know, how, how it is of service to creators. Do you remember when you first made money from YouTube videos? And do you remember when, like, were you working a job and were you also like, oh, I can quit? When were you like, I can quit that? Well, I was self-employed at that point. So I had started up a blog while I was in grad school. And like a year after grad school, I had been able to quit all my freelance work because that blog was making me full-time money. And so when YouTube started up, I was making all my money from, from that blog which was my full-time job. Uh, And that just sort of like petered out. And it would have petered out whether or not I was making video. Because what happened was 2008 and the economy crashed and Mm -hmm. all of like the advertising revenue went way down. People were a lot less interested in buying products because they were green, which was uh, kind of a lot of where our ad revenue was coming from for our blog, which was about environmental technology. And also like I'd burned out on it. I was realizing that writing on the internet was mostly about writing really inflammatory headlines that would get people to click on things. You could have put some more GIFs in them. And maybe <laughs> people would have liked it more, just as a suggestion. All right. Thanks. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, I, I was done trying to get on the front page of Reddit. I was in the middle of, like, potentially selling my blog for six figures. So, like, that's the thing that was oh. driving me at that time. I, I was talking to a major media company about selling my blog. Um, and that was, like in the process of happening. And I was going to have a job at that company. And I was going to be like a full-time blogger at a big media company. And and it didn't happen because 2008 happened and they froze absolutely all new spending. 
Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So that's what that's what it was. I was like riding high because I was like, well, I only made eleven thousand dollars this year, but like I'm gonna be in the money. I've talked about that too, like that idea of that you're gonna get a windfall. Like yeah. it's fine, the windfall's coming, so it's all fine. Yeah, and it was very like they brought me out and they like took me to steak dinner and took me to a bunch of like you know like rooftop parties in New York City and yeah. Oh my god! And they don't have rooftops in Montana, so that was no, a really big deal. No, we don't. We don't. It just all the snow falls right into the homes. Yep, yep. So that's a big thing about you, particularly, is that you live in Montana. Yeah, which I would suggest, not particularly <laughs> my town, but, like, if you're a creative person, like, there is something really wonderful about being, and, and like, necessary about being around other creative people. But I I think it's possible that these kinds of creative community will start to pop up other places because... When we first started, we got like a $200 an, an, uh, a month office space and we just built our little studio in there and we went and recorded when we needed a studio space. Yeah, unheard of in L.A. and New York. I think people think you need to be in New York and L.A. Well, I mean, it, yes, like there are lots of opportunities that I don't get being here. Absolutely. Right. And didn't get. Um, but there but there are also like sort of unheralded benefits. And I think that um, being able to make stuff on the cheap, if you're really self-motivated, is one of them. Oh my God, I want nothing more to come to your town and just find the lesbians. <laughs> well, we have oh my, them. I bet they're having the best time. <laughs> I bet they're just like playing guitar and like sculpting and like hanging out with their cats. And I, I would like to join them. <laughs> so do you think that people, when they talk to you, presume that you are very wealthy because of your projects? Uh, and I have no real concept of like what makes you money versus what doesn't? I think that second thing, yes. Like Vlogbrothers, for example, makes us no money. It's like our primary project and it is... But peop- it's so visible yeah. and people would think that that's like your make that... They would think, oh, that's why they're bajillionaires. Yeah, but we don't do brand deals and we give away all of our ad revenue because it's so insignificant that we kind of feel like we might as well. And it's it's sort of like better for the community to do that than, um, than it would be good for us to have the money. Like what would surprise, like where does it come from? A lot of it comes from merch. I think that's mm-hmm. that. Like a lot of people don't have that as creators, um, and it's been a less significant portion of it recently. And I think just because we've thought less about it, and because I think that our community has changed some and is like sort of less into graphic tees. Uh, also, I think fashion <laughs> has changed some. Um, and then, so the rest of my money is mostly like the money I get paid as the CEO of VidCon, and the money that I get paid as you know a host and the co-CEO or founder or whatever it is at our content company. So like that's where the money comes from. But the most visible stuff like the Vlogbrothers and like concerts and like whatever. Oh yeah. People are like oh they're so visible. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily equal financial income. Touring touring like if I did it all the time if I did it all year round I could make good money but like if I do it for a month it's just like oh that was a lot of work for not a lot of money. Right. Do you think fans have an understanding of that or are they just sort of getting to understand that no i don't think that they like and i don't think they need to understand like where it all comes from as long as they understand that like i'm doing fine i'm very lucky to be able to like do cool stuff and it's weird because like john like all of the money from the online projects is less a big deal for him because he had this gigantic book that you know does the thing that very very few books in america do and also like the movie which he didn't actually make any money from the movie but like it helped sell a lot of books and we're partners in our business enterprise, but he is in a different place financially than me. <laughs> not that I'm not doing very well. Um, it's just a different, a different, like, it's very funny. Like once you are uh, making what people would consider to be like, okay, you're rich now. 
Uh, there's yeah. just infinite difference between like making $250,000 a year and making like $10 million a year. But like it's mm-hmm. kind of also the same thing. In what sense? In the sense that like if you want to live like a normal person, there is a moment at which you never have to worry about money. And as mm-hmm. like a single cup, like a couple with no kids, uh, mm-hmm. that comes pretty quick in terms of like, you know, the amounts of money that you could make. And for me, it's like money is about not having to ever think about it, not mm-hmm. being able to buy whatever the frick I want. But when it's like, oh, I have to get this thing, not that I want, but that I need, or that I have medical right. bills or something like that, and I just don't have to worry about that, that's the real transition to be able to be like, oh, I'm buying a thing and I don't have to like check my budget. Um, Ugh, that's, yeah, I agree with and, that. And that happens, you know, if, if I was like a family of four living in New York City, $250,000 a year would not be that amount of money. Um, but my aunt and uncle have like two Mercedes and I'm like, what? And my parents are like, yeah, they didn't have you through. And they're like, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I see where you guys went wrong. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's all kind of the same thing. And, and I have a problem with ostentatious displays of wealth. Like I've always had felt as if like I need to understand the gifts that I have been given and to appreciate them and to always try to understand what life would be like if I had had a different life or if I went to the mm-hmm. store and I had to make different choices. So we just uh, traded in our Subaru Outback for a Honda CRV. Not a big ostentatious display of wealth uh, to trade in a 10-year-old car for a new one. Um, but like, I spent that time thinking about like, what would it be like to go to the dealer lot and know that I am buying a car that is more likely to kill me and my family because mm. I can't afford the the one that is safer. Mm-hmm. And like I and I have lots of friends who are in that situation. And like I often get people who are like, "Oh God, your white guilt." And I'm like, "Well, okay. First, I d- didn't say anything about race. Second, it doesn't have to be guilt. And I I think I did feel for a long time guilty, but it's. It's not that for me. I don't feel guilty about who I am or how I was born or what I've done. I don't feel guilty about my success, but I do want to feel empathy for other people. And like the the feeling that if you are empathetic, that you immediately have to feel guilty. Maybe that's something that is human, but I think that it can't stop us from feeling empathy. And I despise, so deeply despise those comments. Yeah, and you do a lot of sort of like trying to break down your own success. Like I, the you did like some tweets about like if I didn't have a symmetrical face, would I be successful? Like yeah. you, it seems like you spend a lot of time thinking about like why you are privileged enough to be in this position. I do, and I think that that's not just uh, it's not just empathy. It's also like sound business strategy because what are the tools I have at my disposal? What am I good at? And so like, you know, you look at me and you can say like, okay, that's a nerdy white dude. So like, what's mm-hmm. the thing that would be best for him to do? Probably science videos. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like understanding the tools you have at your disposal. You know, like if I had like a giant weird face scar, didn't have a nose, then people wouldn't want to look at me. Maybe I would make voiceover videos and like knowing that's okay. Yeah, I think about that all the time about like the commodity of like me as this sort of blonde white girl. But it, but then I think like, well, I can commodify like subverting that mm-hmm. and trying to do like 
socially conscious videos and it's like almost like haha got you here with hot girl but now you're gonna learn something right. yeah and i yeah I, it's funny i had a when i posted that i had a friend uh respond yeah i mean it's pretty amazing that i get to put a like objectively attractive face in every single one of my thumbnails the idea that that doesn't matter it like people who say that like i don't watch you because you're good looking i'm like well like, I, and I'm I'm not saying, like... You don't watch me because you're attracted, but yeah. you watch because it, it's, like, pleasant to watch. It's, it's, it doesn't hurt, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's And also, like, you now, but, like, what's, what are all the weird subconscious reasons why you clicked on the first thumbnail? And I'm not saying that, like, my face is, like, Channing Tatum or anything, but, like, it is different. Like, if I was, you know, 100 pounds overweight, it would be different. No, definitely. And and also commodifying, I think also like like sharing your personal life, right? So you saying like I'm a nerdy guy and talking about like your illnesses or whatever else, like making money off of how much you share about yourself too. Mm, mm-hmm. When you guys were making stuff in the beginning, were you like how much should we talk about versus not talk about? No, I kind of wish we had, but like we had no idea what it was going to become. Um so I, we, we wouldn't have been able to have an intelligent conversation about it anyway. For me, if like if it didn't seem like a thing that I wanted to talk about, I just didn't talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. And like and we we are like facing that crisis kind of right now with, you know, 2016 having been a really freaking awful year and like everybody kind of expecting us to comment on every single tragedy that occurs and being like, well, we we started doing that like we like. When, when we were first making our videos, like when something really awful happened, we would make a video because like it's, you know, it's Friday and I got to make a video and like this awful thing just happened. So what I'm going to talk about but this awful thing. Um, right. But now being like, look, we can't. I mean, that's like a thing I've talked about. Not like saying you're doing rage clicks, but like there's like hot button stuff or that people will like I always think about how the Dear Fat People video got so many mm-hmm. clicks. To me, it's that's not the worst of it. To me, it's the people who think that they've hit on some tremendous injustice in the world and uh, and they make a video about it and everybody kind of agrees because they don't want to think about the situation in a complicated way. There are so many videos on YouTube right now that have, you know, more than a million views that are about how Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. And like th- we are now at a place where they're like that kind of outrage porn is one of the greatest ways to get a YouTube audience right now because mm-hmm. and it was it always would have been a great way to get a YouTube audience and there were always some people doing it but now it's so hard to get an audience any other way that the people who really really want it and who really want to connect like they have to find some way to get an audience and all of the non shitty ways have been taken and mm-hmm. that's very disappointing and scary as someone who has a lot of faith in YouTube in particular and the internet in general being a positive force in the world to watch. No, I agree. Cause it's easier to do that than to do the work of taking 10 years to make. Yeah. Like good. Well, content. and also like I had the, I had the privilege of being there when it was easier. Um, and like, yeah. I understand that like now if you, if you look at it you know, like a couple of years ago, if you were trying to get noticed on YouTube, like, yeah, prank videos, that's the way to do it. Um, in the beginning, it was a lot of people who were just messing around and like didn't even see that there was potential value in what they were doing. Whereas now, if you like, mm-hmm. if you're trying to get famous on YouTube, it's because like everybody knows that that's a big deal. Everybody knows that's a way to get famous, um, and right. so you get a different kind of person trying to do it. Okay, so with the Internet Creators Guild, so I've talked a lot about this kind of thing, and we talked about like my fusion articles and 
tell me what it is and then also like what your plan is for it. Uh, the two things that it wants to do and that it's going to do are one, represent this industry in the press, uh, be a, a place where reporters can go to and be like, okay, well, here's what this organization is saying. What do all of the tens of thousands of people who are creating professionally on the internet think about this? Instead of mm-hmm. instead of just having the platform be the only thing that is in charge of the discussion, which is just ludicrous, right? Um, and mm-hmm. you can go to like a single creator and be like, hey, what do you think? But uh, you know, like whenever I do those interviews, I feel like I'm not being representative of the whole industry. I'm just representing my one particular view. Um, and that also is representation in terms of like dealing with platforms and like their changes, talking about their changes from the perspective of creators. And I think oftentimes, you know, platforms on the internet and, and what they're doing line up with the interests of creators, but occasionally they don't. And then the other thing, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, and and okay. then uh, and then the other thing is uh, actually providing advice and information, and that's you know it's case studies on what other creators have done and how they how they they've been successful and like how they went from doing this for years without making money to like now they're finally doing it full time. How does it compare to like WGA or SAG? Um, I don't really know. Like my experience with SAG is. Uh, that I pay them some money and that allows me to work. Um, oh, mine is that they they send me letters going, why haven't you joined us? You've been on television. And I go, what? And then pretend I haven't seen it. <laughs> I've, been, I've been on some shoots that like required me to sign up. Um, yeah. There's no interest in, one, requiring people to sign up, or two, right. like bargaining collectively through like a strike I was just talking to, like, I realized why, like, a strike sounds so ludicrous to me. And it's not because, like, it would be literally impossible to organize. It's because we aren't cogs in the machine in the same way that workers used to be. We have direct access to our audiences now. And we can Mm -hmm. say whatever we want to them. And that's the scary Mm -hmm. thing to a platform. But here's so here's two of my questions. So one is like has to do with brand deals and sponsorships. Like the biggest thing when Allison and I first started was we were making these sponsorship deals and then we would hear later that they had given another creator way more money mm-hmm. or they had asked less of that or like whatever it is. There was no like across the board um, oversight on brands making deals or the MCNs making deals for you or whatever it is, like different unfair deals between different creators. I think the first step is to just increase communication between creators. And I think that people have been like kind of afraid to do that. Uh, so I know I was blown away by how the response to my article because people were like it was like a thi- I was like why is no one yeah. talking about the money aspect of this yeah so giving people platforms with which to communicate with themselves is sort of the first step we'd also like to create some resources that are like here's you know the range that you would see in terms of money and the range that you would see in terms of what people are going to ask from you and if you're being asked and what's for more normal, and are you being asked for too yeah. much and don't don't do an extra Instagram post for no more money. And if they want, you know, like just standard shit that like Allison and I didn't know going in. Yeah, And then uh, in addition to that, um, some actual standard contracts that we would say to creators and to agencies like this is 
the sort of like, it would be great if this was like the starting point for a lot of contracts, because we all sort of see this as standard. We understand what all the language means. And we're working with some lawyers to put that and some other annotated contracts, not just for brand deals, but also for like agencies and for management and for for MCNs. I should say MCN is multi-channel network, which is kind of like a digital agency. Yeah. What um, is it? I don't know. Nobody knows. They changed their name now anyway. It's not an MCN. It's a multi-platform network. Everyone kind of does different things. They're like, they sell ads, they do brand deals, they will manage you or they'll be your agent, but never really the same thing for every person. And not every company does it the same way, but we call them all the same thing. It's very complicated. There's a guild member who's right now about to sign with an MCN. And just in this specific case, I think that we kind of want to follow her through the process and see, um, you know, like right now how she's feeling and like a year from now how she's feeling as sort of a case study. So in terms of Internet Creators Guild, there's two types of Internet creators. There's people who run their own channels, which are like independent channels, such as Just Between Us plug um (laughs) and then (laughs) uh which is my channel and then um there's also big media companies like SourceFed and buzzfeed and elite daily and stuff like that that hire people to create for their big Mm -hmm. company channels and the difference is that the independent creators own their own content and have their own like run you know can make any sort of thing with their content that they own and the intellectual property and then the other side is that these independent creators that go in Um, Anything that they make, the company owns. So with the Internet Creators Guild, it seems like it it obviously represents the independent side, but does it also represent people who are at these big companies who may need help with contracts or with legal stuff or with getting out of those jobs or transitioning from those jobs to independent jobs? Like, is there a place for them in ICG? Yeah, I mean, I think that you are still an Internet creator, even if you are not producing content for yourself, uh, even if you don't own, own your content at the end of the day. And I, I think that a lot of people just sort of like immediately want that job. Um, I know. And, and, and we'll, there's no union. And we'll kind, of, to... we'll kind of sign anything at that point because yeah. they're like, I get to make stuff for a living. Like I get to have a job in L.A. And, you know, I think that, the, that it can be a really good relationship. And I think that it can be a bad relationship. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, increasing communication between those people, I think, is really valuable. Giving them a place to talk that is not sort of like under the like in in earshot of their boss and i i like honestly can't imagine that uh more information being bad for anybody do you think now is the best time to be an internet creator uh yeah i mean no um probably (laughs) go on probably before (laughs) there was mass broadcast media there were more people who were able to be professional creators um, and to be professional performers in terms of the you know percentage of the population, and uh, so so it's it's almost as if we lost that when we consolidated creation into the hands of a very few large companies that were able to kind of commodify it. But now the internet has broken that model and has allowed people to have that as a goal and as a job, and um, and it's pretty undeniable now that so many people are actually doing it full time. And that's a that's a really yeah. cool thing that I'm really happy to be doing myself and happy to be helping other people do. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Hank. Oh, thank you for having me on your podcast, Gabby. I really appreciate the solidifying further solidifying of our friendship. Yes. Um, and also the not interviewing John because it's a hot people only podcast. Right, right. Of course. <laughs> Thank you.
I personally am very excited about the Internet Creators Guild. I I hope it can tangibly do something to eliminate the ways in which video creators are taken advantage of, specifically financially. I'm interested in it becoming more of a union in terms of the way people are paid and allowing people to negotiate salaries for video creation jobs that are essentially comparable to TV creation jobs and are treated as less than. I mean, even on late night shows now, if you create something for the internet and later the show uses it on television, you're not paid a television writer's salary. And that is unfair. Um, And there's tons of things like that. You know, people picketed because there was stuff that was unfair going on in television writing. And I just want to empower people that work in internet creation to understand that the work is valuable. I really want the ICG to work. I really believe in Hank. Hank is so smart. And if anyone can pull it off, he can. And in the meantime, I know you brands. I know who you're paying more and who you're not paying. I see you. And all you companies. I know everything. You in danger, girl. I'm getting kind of tired of this. Publication media blitz. You got all of Muggle kind under your spell. Don't you know the whole world's already gone and reserved a copy at Amazon? How many more books could you sell? Now give me my book or go to hell. Cause I need Harry Potter. Like a grandy love needs water. Now Saturday approaches mine equals. Oh, I see you deathly howls and send you book sales and bargains. It'll be like Phoenix tears on a broken for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate us in iTunes, subscribe, and tell all your poor friends that this is a safe space for deadbeats. Also, feel free to tell all your friends who take Ubers even if they're only going 12 blocks and they're literally around the corner from a subway entrance. What a New York reference. My producer's from New York. You guys can tell he wrote that. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Our engineer is Jeremy Underwood. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I will talk to you next time. Sleeves of JK Rowling. I better not to do a skip and break the leave out and to protect that pure blood plus face mouth boy. But in the end, I don't think it's gonna matter if Snape's good or if he's bad because the weight of the world rests on our boy.